Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. As we prepare to open God's word, let's pray together and ask Jesus to open our hearts. Lord Jesus, we address you as our savior and as the one who has promised that a bruised or broken reed you will not discard as worthless. And you're a savior who when the wick is smoldering, you won't snuff it out and throw it away, but you'll care for it, blow on it, fan the flame. And so, Lord Jesus, I ask you that now as we open your word, you would reach into hearts that are just about ready to give up. And I ask that you would reach into hearts that, truth be told, they are broken, but they're acting like they're not. And humble hearts that we might receive your marvelous grace. Do this, that you might be glorified in your church, we ask. Amen. Amen. Open with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 42. And Isaiah 42, in this blessed text, is located uh, one of our favorite descriptions of our Lord Jesus Christ and the way that he treats us. We'll look together at Isaiah 42, verses 1 uh, on down through verse 17. We'll begin just by reading verses 1 through 4. Isaiah, that marvelous prophet, begins this chapter saying this, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. In Isaiah 42, we have this really uh, famous biblical title, Behold My Servant, or The Servant of the Lord. And the, the big swing chapter in Isaiah is 39, and then in 40 through 66, Isaiah takes a new theme, and really the theme of 40 through 66 is the servant of the Lord. Depending on how you break it down, there are four or five servant songs in Isaiah 40 through 66. And the question we have to ask is, who is the servant of the Lord? Because in the Old Testament, Moses is identified as the servant of the Lord about 20 times. And also in the Old Testament, David is identified as the servant of the Lord about 20 times. And actually, it, not only just in the Old Testament, but even in Isaiah... Israel is identified as the servant of the Lord, maybe uh, 11 or 14 times. So who is the servant of the Lord? Well, this text makes it sort of impossible that this means Moses or David or Israel. In fact, 
if Israel is referred to in this text, Israel is the bruised reed and the smoldering wick. Because this text describes a figure who will accomplish every purpose for which God has designed the world. And this text embodies a figure who himself embodies what God designed humanity to be and what God designed the entire world to be. So who could that figure be? It would have to be the servant of the Lord who bears the sins of his people and who saves the world. When Isaiah continues about the servant of the Lord, listen to what he's going to say in Isaiah 52, verse 13. 52, 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and exalted. And do you know what he's going to say in Isaiah 53? 53, beginning in verse 3. The servant of the Lord was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he's despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him has the chastisement brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed." Who can this be but the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus? Notice that he says the servant of the Lord in verse 3 will bring forth justice. He will bring forth justice. In the Old Testament, justice means, justice means a society of people who are living and treating one another the way God intended people to live and treat one another. Isaiah loves this theme of justice. He began with it in the very first chapter. Listen to Isaiah 1, verses 16 and 17. He says to his unjust people, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. He says, wash the blood off your hands and cease to do evil. And in Isaiah 1, 17, he says, learn to do good, seek justice, Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's case. He says in chapter 32, another beautiful chapter in Isaiah, listen to what justice looks like in Isaiah 32. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice and each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm. Oh, so often in human history, Scratch history. So often in our contemporary lives, our political leaders are the storm that causes us trouble. Here, he says that a king will come who will be like a hiding place from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Isaiah 32, 3. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. And the heart of the hasty will understand and know. And the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. Every human government in its depravity eventually calls fools noble and calls scoundrels honorable. Not so the king of kings. 
and the Lord of Lords when he reigns. And Isaiah 42 verse 3 says that the Messiah, the suffering servant, will bring forth justice. And in, in, even in verse 4, it says he'll bring it forth in all the earth. I don't believe that's happened yet. Have you seen our current options of who we get to vote for? You don't believe it's happened yet either. But we believe that it shall happen when Jesus Christ returns to reign in his millennial kingdom over all the earth. We can read through the rest of it beginning in verse 5. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. What a statement. New things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise to the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and all their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The village that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Old version says, like a dread champion. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I've held my peace, I've kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I'll gasp and pant, I'll lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetations. I'll turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools and I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths they have not known. I'll guide them. I'll turn the darkness before them into light and the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do. I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. This is a promise of what the suffering servant when he comes back as the vindicated and risen king will do in all the earth. In the beginning, in verse 5, did you notice it says, thus says God the Lord. And so it's actually God the Father speaking to God the Son, his servant, the Messiah. There's a place in Luke chapter 2 where an old man named Simeon meets the baby Jesus and he quotes from Isaiah 42 verse 6 and identifies this as Jesus. Do you notice verse 7? He says that he opens the eyes that are blind. I can't help but think of the, uh, the marvelous healings that Jesus did when he was here. Let me just read one of them. It's not a blind man, but it's a leper. Just listen. Listen to, listen to how snappy Mark makes this little story in the very beginning of his gospel about a healing that Jesus delivered. Mark 1, a leper came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling and said to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. 
moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. When the servant of the Lord was here on the earth, when he encountered deafness, lameness, blindness, he healed it. When he encountered death, the widow's son on the bier, he, he, he raised him again to life. Certainly he brings us out of prison. He brings us out of darkness. And so when you get to verse 8, and it says, I am the Lord, my glory I will give to no other. Frankly, I, I have pity for your foolhardiness. If you read that verse and go, oh, God's just all about himself and he's just kind of grandstanding there. Look at what he says. I, I heal you. I redeem you. I fill your life with love. That's why I'm not going to give my glory to another because no one else can do that for you. Only God. Glory be to him and him alone. Why would we, why would we call an idol or a dollar or a nation or some other plan of therapy our salvation? It will never be. Only God. Only God. Notice what he says in verse 9 that he's doing something new. Interesting, these terms old and new. God makes promises. God's prophets have made these promises all throughout the Old Testament. And then when Jesus came the first time, he fulfilled the first portion of those promises. But he'll fulfill them all in the end. Isaiah makes a lot of that term new. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. Isaiah is going to use that word new many times and it's almost like, a, almost like a drum roll toward the very end of his prophecy, 65 and 66, the last two chapters. He, he, he makes a lot of this term new. Listen to Isaiah 65 verse 17. Isaiah 65, 17 says, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or ever come to mind. And so because the Bible makes so many internal connections with itself when we get to the last or the, the next to the last chapter of the Bible, John, another prophet poet, just like Isaiah was, says this in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with him, them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the marvelous, joyous culmination of the song of the suffering servant that began in Isaiah 42. 
the beatings and the mockings in Isaiah 53, the resurrection, the ascension, and soon the return. So if we've read through Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 17, I want to show you how the New Testament relates what is specifically in verses 1 through 4. I just think as a church, what would, what would focus our hearts the most is to see how verses 1 through 4 uh, give us a glimpse into the hands and the heart of Jesus, our Savior. So turn to the place where the New Testament sort of explains this in Matthew chapter 12, and then we'll head back to Isaiah 42. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than Mark, Luke, or John do. And of all the times that Matthew quotes the Old Testament, Matthew 12 is the longest quotation from the Old Testament, and it is Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and what he's doing is he's explaining to them and even proving to them that Jesus is the promised Savior, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. The problem is the Jewish expectation was that Messiah would look a certain way. They did not expect a Messiah who wouldn't snuff out a smoldering candle. They expected a Messiah who would what? Just bring forth a mighty sword and just slay all of Israel's enemies. They had a contrary expectation. And so as Matthew is addressing this, what does he do? He points out their error in, in the way that was most likely to illuminate them, which is to use their own scripture that they were supposedly clinging to to define who the Messiah was, and he proves to them from their very own reasoning and their very own scripture that when the Old Testament prophesied how Messiah would come, it would be like this, gentle, lowly, mounted on a donkey, and not discarding the little reed that everybody else wouldn't care about. The way that Matthew does this <laughs> to me is uh, lesson number 12,143, that if you have a question about something, you can find the answer by accurately interpreting the Bible. This, this is what we need. I, I'm... I've never intended to have a ministry in which I use the Bible for some of it and then use something else for the really complicated stuff. I've also never intended to have a, a Bible declaration ministry where I validate the Bible by something else other than the Bible. Frankly, to me, that would be to insult the Bible. Like, I need science to prove this? No, I need this to define what the world and the cosmos is. This is how all of the authors of Scripture reason. And it's the, the way that I was taught and trained and the only way that I know. So look at Matthew 12, beginning in verse 9. Jesus went on from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? 
And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out conspiring against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So here let's ask and answer three questions about the suffering servant. First, what's the inner spring of his life? What's the inner spring of his life? Matthew 12, verse 18 says, My servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I'll put my spirit upon him. Isaiah 42, verse 1 says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I will put my spirit upon him. What is the inner spring of the life and ministry of the servant? It is this. His understanding that his father has chosen him. The fullness of the spirit that he has and his his full assurance and experience that he is beloved by God and that God delights in him. So as, a, as an Orthodox Christian church, we believe and confess the doctrine of the Trinity. The one true God eternally exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we see, well, you see that in Matthew's gospel you see the Trinity and then you also see the Father's delight in the Son in the unforgettable scene of the baptism of Jesus. I'm reading from Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. When Jesus was baptized, Jesus is the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. One of the, one of the early church fathers, I forget which one it was, writing in 400 or 600, way long ago, made a little comment that's always stuck with me. He said, he took that phrase, God the Father speaking about God the Son and saying, I am delighted in my Son. And this old writer said, everything else in all of holy writ radiates out of that delight. What is the inner spring of the life of the servant of God? It is that the Father delights in the Son. The great delight of God the Father in God the Son. 
Now think with me, church, as we are, we're Christians, which means that we're, we're, we're taken into Christ. At the close of this service, we're going to welcome new members into the church. And every new member that we welcome into the church has given credible evidence that they are filled with the Spirit of God, that they've understood the love of God in the gospel, that they know that God has loved them in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you, so it's not a misread to look back at Isaiah 42 uh, verse 1 and say if the servant of the Lord was chosen by God, as a church we believe every member of this church was chosen by God. Every member of this church has the experience that God was delighted to love them and save them. And now, because they're born-again believers, they have been filled with the Spirit. You have the assurance that God loves you. The Spirit is the seal and assurance. We sang that in one of our songs this morning. So Christian, think about it like this. Everything that is true in your experience of your Christianity is true is true for you because in your place, Jesus Christ was filled with the Spirit. Jesus Christ was baptized. Jesus Christ suffered in your place. He is risen in your place. And to be a Christian is to be in Christ. But think especially of how much the Father delights in the Son. The, the delight between the Father and the Son, pre exists, predates the world. The Father delighted in the Son before time began. Your salvation rests in the fact that God the Father, who delights in God the Son, your salvation rests in the fact that it pleased the Father to crush the Son in your place. And the resurrection of Jesus from the grave validates and proves that the offering of the Son was utterly satisfactory to the Father. And he's delighted in the Son's resurrection. You can be sure that God loves you. Oh, how often, how often does a Christian friend have the honesty to tell you, I'm just struggling does God really love me? Does God really care? Does God really know what's going on? And we try to comfort each other. You know, you can have assurance that God loves you by looking at the love that God the Father has for God the Son. And then by re-engineering your own understanding of your identity that you are no longer you, you are in Christ. You're you in Christ. And if you're in Christ and God delights in God the Son, then that, that's your assurance that God's with you and that he loves you. It's, it's, like the, it's like the depth understanding of salvation. Look, I, I, preached the God, I had an opportunity uh, to preach the gospel yesterday. I, I love preaching the gospel. <laughs> and uh, when I preach the gospel, I don't have a problem that a part of the gospel is Salvation is being saved from your sins. Salvation is being rescued from hell. That's a huge part of the gospel. That's not the entire gospel. This, this is like a, the, the most depth understanding of salvation that in my pea brain I could come up with is that salvation is being taken in to Christ so that when we are saved, 
God loves us as God loves his son. And the deepest understanding of salvation is that the love that predates the universe, the love between the father and the son, that's the love that we are caught up into when we are saved. Oh, church, we, we should spend so much more time talking to each other about how the father delights in the son. This would make our lives so much happier. You, you know the deal as a human. Everybody wants to be happy. And the harder each person tries to be happy, the more happiness eludes his or her grasp. It's like the law of humanity. It just doesn't work. You want to feel good about yourself. And the more you think about feeling good about yourself, the less you feel good about yourself. This is because the source of a healthy self lies outside of the self. It has to. It has to. What if the source of a healthy self is the delight that God the Father has for God the Son and that my self, the life that I now live, I know it's I who live it, but it is not I. It is Christ in me and me in Christ. Rest in the fact that you're in Christ. Let that be the source of your delight in ministry. I don't, I, I don't know uh, how long my, my life's going to be. I, I, people ask me, do you, are you going to stay in Racine forever? Are you going to retire? I have no plans to go anywhere else or do anything else, and I certainly have no plans to retire. But the, the only way to sustain in ministry if I could put it this way, is to have a source of joy and sustaining that isn't the ministry that I do. The source of my joy is that God the Father loves God the Son, and in his indescribable mercy, he has plucked me as a brand from the fire, and he has placed me to be lost inside of his Son. This, this, this is my only joy when it comes down to it. That's the first question. What's the source of strength and delight and sustenance for the servant? Second, what is the manner of his ministry? And here we get to look at this precious description of Jesus with the bruised reed and the faintly burning wick. Verses 2, 3, and 4 in Isaiah 42 in the original Hebrew contain seven negative contrasts. He doesn't do this. Instead, he does that. And the contrast is how you would expect a ruling Messiah to roll out his rule and how Jesus actually rolled out the declaration of his kingdom. And what you would expect is what we see. The, the blustering of a megaphone, the sort of promotion of constantly pushing. Did you notice? Did you notice? In Matthew 12, when he quotes this, Jesus heals somebody and everybody wants to shout about how he's healing and what does Jesus say? Shh, don't tell anyone. He's meek. He doesn't cry aloud. He doesn't lift up his voice. He doesn't seek maximum exposure. This is so different 
than the way that we promote things. And this is so different from the, the sort of Darwinian, military, industrial, the strongest survive. But Jesus has this meekness where he, where he um, well, you remember what he said in Mark chapter 10, a verse worth, worth memorizing if you're ever in any way called to lead. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 43, he said that, uh, well, he says in, in verse 42 that those who rule over the Gentiles lord it over them. The great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be the servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. Another marvelous verse that would be worth meditating and memorizing is what Peter does with this in 1 Peter chapter, uh, is it chapter 2 or chapter 3? 1 Peter chapter 2, he says this. I'm quoting from 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 21. 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse uh, 21. It says there, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is the example that Jesus sets for us, and this is the kind of ethic, the kind of personal relational ethic that Christians in Christ are to live with. And I think many of us would say that verse 3 of Isaiah 42, that the bruised reed he won't break and the faintly burning wick he won't quench is one of our favorite descriptions of Jesus. Reeds are not valuable. They're everywhere. You leave Spring Street, you see that long grass, like all the way. There's so much of it. It's everywhere. So if, if, uh, if it was broken or soggy, you just get, get rid of it if you want a straight one. Well, what this is saying is Jesus doesn't discard those he loves as, as useless. And then the smoldering wick was uh, the strip of linen that would be in the oil lamp. And when it didn't work, you could just snuff it out and start over. But here he rescues that one and he, and, he, and he tends to it so that he can use it. In Matthew's use of this, in Matthew 12, the contrast is the Pharisees just toss people out if they don't properly serve the religious system. Jesus has this tremendous heart of mercy for people and he cares for them time and time and time again. Jesus will show tender concern for those who are weak and who ask him for help. Jesus will always show tender concern to those who are weak and ask him for help. One of my favorite pastors was J.C. Ryle. I read his books often. And this is what he says about this, and I just, I quote it because it's, exact, it's exactly what I would want to say to you this morning. So take this as, as from both of us. He says, there are some in every congregation you know who you are. You're here right now. There are some in every congregation who are full of despondency because their knowledge is so little 
and their faith is so diminutive as to be dwarfish. But let them drink stout comfort out of this very text. And let them know that even a weak faith gives a man or woman a real and true and saving interest in Christ as much as a strong faith does. If your faith is in Christ, he's not going to reject you if your faith is in him. What do people who are bruised reeds and smoldering wicks look like? Question, I submit to the floor. What do people who are bruised reeds and smoldering wicks look like? What could they possibly look like? I wonder what they could possibly look like. Well, you know, it looks like all y'all and your elder and deacon board too, right? That's us. The entry into the church is the admission, I can't save myself. It's all of us. I tried and I couldn't. Don't you think a big part of believing in Jesus is giving up on yourself? When we come to Jesus, what we need is need. And Jesus works with that every time. I uh, do, a, you know, I, I meet with folks as a pastor, try to, try to be a wise counselor. Uh, there's a lot I'm still learning about counseling, but I have learned one thing over the years. Biblical counseling almost always, almost always works when the person I'm meeting with says something like, he or she says this, I am my problem and I need Jesus to help me. My counseling almost never, almost never works when the person I'm meeting with says something like this, I kind of know what the Bible says and I kind of know what Jesus promises to do, but my situation is different because of this person or this circumstance or this person or that circumstance. I'm just telling you the, the, the healthiest place to be is to admit that I'm the bruised reed, I'm the smoldering wick, and I need Jesus to help me. That's the manner of the servant of the Lord. And third, what's the ultimate outcome? You see it all the earth will be filled with his justice. All the Gentile nations will hope in him. All over the world, people will come to understand who God is because of what the suffering servant has done. This is why we, this is why we partner with the church in Cabernet Bucaria. This is why we, we sent John Anderson to Nepal. He, there, he's on his way. Next Sunday, you'll hear from Adam. I've asked him to preach in the pulpit. Adam Markowski, who's headed to Papua New Guinea. This is, why we, this is why we give and why we go because of, because of this promise from Jesus. The ultimate outcome is that he will have the prize for which he died. And perhaps the final question to ask you is, um, are the words of verses 1 through 4 a comfort to you today? And I don't want you to say yes too quickly. That's the final question. Are the words of verses one through four a comfort to you today? 
because these words are a comfort only for some. For whom are these words a comfort? These words are a comfort for the bruised reed who knows that she's a bruised reed. They're a comfort for the smoldering wick who admits he's the smoldering candle. These words are a tremendous comfort for the person who walks into church and beats on the breast and says, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm the sinner. But I tell you, in the name of Jesus Christ, it would not be truthful or loving for me to offer words of comfort to a proud, unrepentant sinner. This is not how the love of Jesus operates, and it's not how faithful gospel ministry operates. It is not loving or Christ-like to offer comfort to a proud, hard-hearted, unrepentant sinner. To a reed who insists, I'm straight up on my own. Nothing's going to break me. To a smoldering wick that insists, this is all the light I can get and it's, it's somebody else's fault and I don't need Jesus' help. So I ask you again, are verses 1 through 4 a true comfort to you? which is to ask you, are you right now deeply, deeply and fully done with your own way, your own wisdom, your own righteousness, your own defensiveness? And are you crying out to Jesus? For if you do, he will always show meekness, mercy, and mighty saving love to those who call upon his name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, have mercy on the bruised reed, the smoldering candle. Do what only you can do to bring salvation to lives and hearts today. We praise you for your mercy, your mighty power, and your great grace unto us. Jesus, be glorified in the life of your church. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.